spring 1969, I was eight years old. Don't do the math, you'll, <laughs> but I'm, it's 69, I'm eight years old, and I discovered something about myself. We got our copy of this big honk on Eaton's catalog, the, the summer edition of Eaton's catalog, and on the back of the Eaton's catalog was a picture of a Fastback 100. Wow. This, this was uh, patterned after the, you know, this late 60s, you know, the choppers, and, and this just caught my attention, and I discovered something about myself, desire, and I became obsessed with this bicycle, and I went to my father, 57.95, Gordy Howe says it's out of this world, but, uh, but I, I became obsessed with this bicycle, so I went to my father, and I said, Dad, I really, really want this bicycle, and we live in the country, so my dad probably thought, well, eight, you probably should have a bike by now, And he says, I'll make you a deal, because this is a teachable moment for me. He clearly sees that opportunity. And he said, here's the deal. If you save for half of it, I will pay the other half. So $30 and $30 with taxes, roughly. And so he was on, and I was on. Except, remember, this is 1969, I'm eight years old. Where am I going to get $30 for the next few months? Well, I worked like crazy. I would do little jobs, big jobs, wherever I could and get a dollar here, a dollar, 50 cents there, two dollars here. And at the end of August, I went to Eaton's and I got myself a Fastback 100. Desire is a powerful thing. It can motivate us. It can, it can drive us. It can obsess us. It can fuel us. It can destroy us, and it can kill us because desire is a powerful thing. Now, desire finds its roots uh, in its distorted form by going back to Genesis because there in Genesis, we have a record for us of how we, uh, in a calculated manner, chose to no longer believe God, to believe that somehow God was holding out on us, and we disbelieved God, and we believed the lie, and we turned our back on God, and we severed that relationship with him. And when we did that, something broke. Something was lost. Something was now distorted and bent inside of every one of us. And yet within us was still this hunger, thirst, because we knew something was missing, but we didn't know what it was. We didn't know where to find it, but we had a thirst, a thirst that somehow we hoped could be satisfied. And it was instilled in us by God because we were made in the image of God. We were created for relationship, but now we were bent, now we were distorted, now we were broken, and now everything was blurry, everything was fuzzy. And so we had desire, but we didn't exactly know what it was for. I love what Jeremiah the prophet says about desire. He says this, he's speaking to his own people. Jeremiah was writing at a very dark time when the Babylonians were moving in. And he says this, He's quoting God and God says to say this to the people. For my people, his people, the Jews, they've committed two evils, two sins. The first, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And then secondly, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And a cistern was basically a a well of sorts. It was a a vat, it was a cavernous uh, hole, basically that would collect rainwater, any kind of water that would come their way. It would hold that water. And you can well imagine, this isn't fresh river water. This isn't fresh well water. This would be stale. It would be dirty. It would be muddy. And here Jeremiah says this. He says, 
My people have committed two sins. First of all, they've, they've left God, they've forsaken God, turned their back on God, and secondly, they built cisterns for themselves because they didn't want the living water. Instead, they chose to drink and satisfied the dehydration of their soul through these stale, muddy, bacteria-filled, cavernous cisterns. That's what we do. When we're thirsty, we look to satisfy that through other means. The ultimate example of this would certainly be Solomon. In fact, one of the most relevant books to our times is Ecclesiastes. In fact, Ecclesiastes has relevance for every era, especially if you're in a seeking position right now in your life. But Solomon had it all. Constant flow of information. He surrounded himself by, by, by vineyards and by beautiful architectural wonders and, and he, he, he had pleasure and he had power and he had influence and he had resources and he had horses and he had cha- He had it all. And he says, vanity, vanity, is all is vanity. It left him empty. And so he, he created all kinds of cisterns for himself and they left him wanting. You see, here's the way it works. We drink at a cistern and then it satisfies us for a while, but then it doesn't satisfy us anymore. So sometimes we do one of two things. We either go to another cistern, and so pleasure, ooh, that's a buzz. But then when it doesn't deliver as much, then we go to power, and that's a buzz. But then maybe we'd greed, and, and we might build different kinds of cisterns, or perhaps we figure, well, you know, pleasure did give me a buzz for a while. No longer. Maybe I just need to drink longer at it. And we delve deeper into pleasure or power, or, 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 whatever it may be. And therein lies the seeds of addiction. Let me, this isn't our central passage yet, but let me take you to a few passages which, which help us understand uh, the, the, the power of desire. In James chapter one, verse 14 says, but each person, when he is tempted, when he is lured and enticed by his own desires, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So here's the way. You have the catalyzing force, the temptation. It's out there. It's external. But our internal desire locks onto that external temptation, and that desire has all the potential of becoming sin. It doesn't have to be, but it often does. And sin, when it's full-blown, leads to, James says, death. Listen to what Peter says. 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 17 to 19. He says he's talking about false teachers and this is what he says. These are waterless springs, these false teachers and mists driven by a storm for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping for those who live in error. They promise them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Here's what happens. The very thing we drink at, the very thing we seek to satisfy our thirst, it eventually overcomes us and we become a slave to it. That's the power of desire. A thirst which every one of us in this room has, except that it's distorted, it's bent, it's twisted and our sight is blurry. Listen to what Spickman said. F.B. Spickman said this. He said, someone has imagined God first fashioning man and one of the hosts of heavens watching, exclaiming in alarm. He says, but you have given this creature freedom. He'll never be wise enough or strong enough to handle it. 
He will think himself a god. He will boast of his own self-sufficiency. How can you gamble that he will ever return to you? And God replies, I have left him unfinished within. I have left him deep needs that only I can satisfy. That out of his desire, his homesickness of soul, he will return to me. Many one-time non-believers, C.S. Lewis, Augustine, St. Augustine himself, offered these same kinds of things where they spoke of this God-shaped vacuum within them and they did not find satisfaction until they reconnected with God. Spickman had discovered something and Jesus, Jesus said it so appropriately in John chapter seven. So if you've got your Bible or New Testament, turn to it, it'll be in the overhead as, as well. But listen to this. On the last day of the feasts, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus here speaks about a thirst. Of course, it was talked about in the Old Testament frequently. In fact, this very passage was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 59. But Jesus talks about this thirst, this craving that we all have. And he says, if anyone comes to me and drinks, they'll find satisfaction. Now, you need to understand the context. And he he references this kind of thirst in chapter four of John. He references it again in chapter six. But in this passage, he tells us how. He doesn't just acknowledge our thirst, but he says, here's how you activate this quenching of this dehydration of soul. He says, you come to me and you drink, and these are really metaphors or symbols of the very next thing he's gonna say, because he who believes in me will activate, will activate this thirst quenching process. And so here he says our thirst can be satisfied when we believe, when we come to God and we believe. Why belief? And we'll talk about what the gospel is in just a moment, but why belief? Can I remind you that our first capitulation from our relation with God, we usually say was was disobedience. And it was disobedience, but there was something beneath the disobedience. It was disbelief. See, the heart of the Christian message is that our relation with God is begun and maintained by faith, trusting God. So in Genesis 3, when when Eve is tempted, not only was she tempted by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, there she saw this beautiful fruit, but she was somehow ensnared by this thought when The serpent said, has God really said you can't have this fruit? Listen, if you take this fruit, you'll be wiser still. And somehow in that moment, Eve doubted God. And her disbelief, her somehow believing that God was insufficient to really meet her needs. And her disbelief manifested itself in disobedience. We got into this predicament, we got into this patch of weeds because of disbelief resulting in disobedience. 
And the way we're gonna get it right is by believing, by igniting faith and trust. But what's the object? It's always Jesus. It's, it's always the gospel. Here's the good news. And this, this, is, a, this is a gospel preaching church, I know, but here's, here's how I think of the gospel. What's the good news? To our broken, depraved, selfish, self-serving condition. It's the person and work and reign. It's the person of Jesus, Son of God, becoming man for us. It's the work of Jesus, not just as good teachings, powerful as they may be, not just as miracles, meaningful as they may have, might have been, but it was work when he went to the cross because there on the cross, he sacrificed himself for you, for me, to atone for and satisfy the, 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 the character expectations of God, the, the, the holiness of God, the, the legal expectations of God to demonstrate justice. It was satisfied there in the cross. But then the gospel is also the reign of Christ. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is Master. And he is constantly establishing his right to rule in our lives, certainly, and on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what it means to bring the kingdom. And one day we're gonna have the ultimate realization of that kingdom when he establishes his right to rule, when he's restoring everything. That's good news for every one of us. And Jesus says, our thirst can be satisfied when we believe. Now then he says that the way it's appropriate in our lives is by the Holy Spirit. It, it, it happens when we believe, but it's appropriate by the Holy Spirit because he is that metaphor for water. He is the one who, well, he comes into our life. This is, this is what happens when we, when we in, invest faith in Jesus. The Bible says that it's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the tree. He is the one that's convicting us of sin, helping us to realize our folly, and he's the one that regenerates us. Titus chapter three talks about this, uh, how he regenerates and makes us new. See, he's reforming us and refashioning us into the image of his son. So he, he, he convicts us and regenerates us. And then the scriptures say he also seals us. And to seal is a, is a declaration of ownership. And not only does he seal us, he indwells us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, don't you know that you're the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you? And just as we would ingest water to quench our physical thirst, the imagery is powerful because water energizes and sustains and refreshes and gives life. In the same way, when we believe in Jesus, the Spirit comes inside of us and gives us life and refreshment and renewal and, and vitality. But then he does one more thing. This same spirit, the Holy Spirit, then becomes life in us and life for others. Because he says, out of, out of your heart, and don't think emotions, out of your heart, the very core of your being, Jesus says, out of your heart will proceed or overflow with living water. 
you will change. You will be a different person and there will be a new kind of outcome to your life, a new kind of outflow. This will be what proceeds from your life. That which is attractive and magnetic and welcoming. The Bible talks about how it's the spirit that works this process of sanctification. It's a, that's a heavy word, but it simply means to appropriate for the use in which it was designed. You don't put good things in a garbage bin. You put garbage, but you, you, put, you put attractive things in a, in a gift box. And you're now being appropriated and sanctified, set apart for something more noble than the way you've been using your body. And you're being transformed, you're being renewed by this work of the spirit. And there's a new kind of fruit in your life. Galatians 5 says, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are the new virtues that will emanate from your life. And as those virtues emanate from your life, not only will that have an impact on your life because the Holy Spirit is life to you, but it will have an impact on others around you. See, think of it this way. Everything you and I have, we're simply stewards of. See, we, we, we not only are visited by God, but we are conduits of God. Everything we have, we're stewards of it. I say this frequently at our institution, that knowledge isn't something for us alone. Knowledge, education, is to be shared. And whenever you're given insight, knowledge, truth, it's meant to be shared. And so the overflow of the transformation of our lives is always that it be poured out on others and becomes a blessing to others. That's the overflow of the Spirit's work. So Jesus stands up on this very important day and he says, you're thirsty, I know you are. Come to me and drink and believe. And my Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come inside of you and quench the ache of your heart. And not only will it give you life, but it will it will produce an overflow into the lives of others. So here, here's my appeal to you. I plead with you when, you, when you hear a message, ask yourself, what does this mean to me? Is, is God saying anything to me? So I, I don't know you as a congregation, but I can't help but expect, there are some of you here this morning because you know, there's a family anniversary dinner at noon, and so you've been invited and you've tagged along. Or maybe you have been at church in some time and you're back here and you have your own story. But some of you, you're not entirely sure what you believe. And you are drinking at cisterns. And you're going from one cistern to another. Listen, when I was eight, I got my Fastback 100. When I was 10, I was eyeing a mini bike. That's human nature, right? Well, that, that sister never, never satisfied anymore, so we move on to another one. You're doing the same. And you, you may not know me, but listen to Jesus. You can keep drinking at cisterns, and they will give you a buzz for a short time, but they will not satisfy until you encounter the living Christ. 
the, the larger share of people here this morning are people who no doubt say they follow Jesus. You, you follow Jesus. You're here because you want to be here. But some of you are a little bit flat. Some of you, you know this passage. This is the first time you've read it. But if you're honest, you're a bit like Judah of old. You've kind of drifted a bit. And you've dug some cisterns. Power, influence, prestige, things, pleasure, stuff, relationships, bicycles. These aren't bad things, but they will not satisfy. And you need to repent and let your satisfaction come from the wonder and beauty that God wants to give you by his spirit. So what I'm going to ask you to do right now is I'm going to ask every one of you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I just want to read you a passage from Psalm 63. And I want you to know that I'm not just saying this. I don't know what I'd do without God. I would be digging cisterns. How else do we cope with the challenges of life without trying to medicate? But I thank God that I found Jesus. Listen to the words of this psalmist. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because of your steadfast love, is better than life. My lips will praise you. And so I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And when I remembered you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you, you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Our Father and our God, we come to you as thirsty beings, you created us to have a relation with you. And we took our own path and dug cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Forgive us. Forgive us. And grant that we would see you in fresh and vital and meaningful ways. That we would feed our relationship with you. That we would submit to your lordship and leadership in our lives. And that we might simply enjoy you because you are water to our dehydrated souls. You refresh us. You sustain us. You motivate us, you empower us. You give us life and you satisfy us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.